welcome. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Write Medicine, a bi-weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm a former nurse and an academic who's now a writer and researcher creating and evaluating education content for health professionals. I also teach medical writers how to enrich their continuing medical education writing niche. If your work involves planning, designing, delivering, or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. Podcasts continue to grow in popularity, and educational podcasts have multiplied in recent years. In addition, the trend towards mobile education and shorter, more focused activities will likely continue as millennials become the majority of the healthcare workforce. On this episode of Right Medicine, I talk with Lisa Townsend, a marketing and communications professional working in healthcare associations and non-profit organizations. We discuss the developing role of both accredited and non-accredited continuing education podcasts and how they fit within the education provider's content portfolio. Join us. Hello and welcome. This is Right Medicine and I'm your host, Alex Housen. I'm here today with Lisa Townsend, a marketing and communications professional with expertise in continuing education for health professionals. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to hear about your experience of launching a podcast in the continuing education space. But let's start by talking a little bit about if you could please share with listeners who you are and what you do. Sure. It's definitely exciting to be on the other side of the microphone. So my name is Lisa Townsend, and I've worked in marketing and communications for healthcare associations and nonprofit organizations for the past 15 years. I started working at a nonprofit that was dedicated to heart disease awareness and prevention, specifically for, and then I spent the past eight years working for the Association of Community Cancer Centers, or ACCC. They have a multidisciplinary membership of more than 30,000 members on the cancer care team. You said that you worked for a nonprofit specifically focused on, on, did you say women's cardiovascular health? Yes. So how did you get your way into continuing education? Yeah, the continuing education focus for me really evolved during my time at ACCC. So CME and CE was a growing area of focus for the members. And as the lead for marketing and communications, I worked closely with my colleagues in provider education, editorial content and strategy, and clinical affairs to produce and promote the content. So it was really my responsibility to dig into the content, to understand the learning objectives, the value of the education, and the skills and perspectives that the faculty brought to the table, and then really communicating that value proposition to targeted provider audiences. So truly, they would be able to take time out of their busy schedules to tune in and take advantage of the content. And sometimes that's challenging, knowing yeah. how big healthcare providers are. But that was, yeah, that was a big part of my role there. Value proposition is something that a lot of practitioners in the CME, CE space talk about. Could you speak a little bit to 
what you're looking for in order to communicate value proposition within an education activity or program. Sure. So I think sometimes it is challenging because there are a lot of avenues for education that providers receive on a daily basis. So it's being able to cut through the competition a bit and be able to really dig into the value of what they're getting from the content. So a lot of times I would approach that as a provider to provider perspective. So really working with the faculty to get quotes from them or testimonials to really understand from their perspective how their colleagues would benefit from either from a webinar or exactly what it was. And then when promoting it, really positioning it so it comes from the provider to their colleagues. So sending emails at their name, including testimonials within the email communication and images. So that way it felt a little bit more personal. Yeah, that peer-to-peer piece is important, not only in marketing, but of course in education itself. Can you talk a little bit then about why ACCC launched a podcast? Sure. So in June of 2019, they launched the podcast called Cancer Buzz. And really the goal was to reach the membership in a new format and to expand our reach to a wider healthcare audience. So having content on an open access platform like podcasts was a new opportunity to introduce oncology professionals to ACCC and their multidisciplinary approach to cancer care. So we really wanted to make the content more accessible and we're a little bit different that the content is very accessible. So it wasn't just for providers, but it really was also interesting and helpful to people with cancer and their families and caregivers. So that was really the goal. And we worked with a small production team that was external to the organization and they guiding us on the groundwork, such as coming up with the name, how that fit into existing names that we had for other platforms, the artwork, the music, helping us define our goals, the frequency of the podcast and the production schedule. And then they also helped us with some script writing, speaker scheduling, and then the interviews themselves. Yeah, the speaker scheduling is a pretty tough call. It's my least favorite part. <laughs> oh, consuming, especially for it's very tight. You're so busy and you're really trying to squeeze in a little bit of time. And you actually answered my second question was how you approached the launch process. It, it sounds as though you had a lot of support from the external production team to, to build that up. Yeah, having their expertise because they've done this before was really helpful for us. So I think it allowed us to skip some of those pitfalls that you might inevitably come across when you, when it's a new space. What kind of pitfalls did you, yeah, sorry to talk over there. What kind of pitfalls did you encounter in the early days? So I think for us, it was really getting clarity on what our process was going to be and how we were going to fit the podcast into the broader content strategy. So we navigated it pretty well, but it was just some things that they helped us to think ahead about that we might not have thought of on our own without that prior experience. It's interesting that I was reading some statistics, which of course I can't remember, but I'll make sure to link in the show notes, the explosion of podcasts that are available for specifically in the accredited continuing 
medical education and continuing education space has been phenomenal in the last five years or so. And of course, some people argue that there's a demographic issue here in terms of it's, it's a younger generation that is largely tuning in to learning by listening. Was that something that you found or did you find in your kind of metrics that your listeners went across the board or was that something you were able to track at all? Yeah, so we, the podcasts that we produced were not CME eligible, but I actually sent out a communication survey to the membership earlier this year, and I did query them if they would be interested in podcasts that provided CE credit. And I got a 72 response rate that, yes, they were definitely interested. So, yeah, so that's something that we're going to explore and really just thinking about putting that content in our learning management system and what those extra steps were that we would need to take to have that content accredited and then having a non-accredited version that's just open access. That's definitely an area of interest. And that open access piece is important. And I'll make sure to link in the show notes to Cancer Buzz because it truly is a phenomenal resource for both providers and patients alike. And the podcast host Summer is Summer Johnson is quite delightful. She is. She's wonderful. And then the pandemic hit. <laughs> How did you... Let's back up there because you talked about the launch process. You talked about how you were trying to figure out how the podcast would align with and fit into the other pieces of content that an organization like ACCC provides for members. What resources did you find that you needed or had to buy in order to launch and maintain the podcast? Yeah, that's a great question. The first resource that we really thought about even prior to launch was the financial resources. So for an organization working with an external group, we needed to make sure that we had a plan to ensure that we could consistently publish content and also to have diversity in funding. So that way we weren't tied to one source so we didn't risk the channel not being robust. But I think for those that produce their own podcast at house, they'll obviously have fewer card expenses, but then that brings you to the second resource, which are the people resources. So, you know, your staff and your time and really depending on the size of your team and whether you're solo or a few folks in one department or if you're working across departments, then it's really coming up with identifying those roles and responsibilities and making sure that's clearly defined as to who's going to be responsible for the topics and sourcing the speakers and the production and the marketing, and then just having all of those workflows to find and the timeline. So that way everybody's on the same page and we can stay on track. And that definitely gets trickier with the more people involved, but we were really able to manage that by having a current and accessible content calendar that was available for everybody and just really kept those communications flowing and making sure everybody knew where we stood. But then I think if you are a one-person show, then you just have to think about how much time you can dedicate to the podcast and juggle that against other priorities. So definitely challenges and opportunities regardless of what format is. One of the things Lisa has always struck me about ACCC is how tightly integrated the personnel are across different functions, marketing and content development and so on. And it's not necessarily something that you see in every organization. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to how that supports content development and what are some of the things that 
um, people who work in education organisations might think about if they want to work more closely with their marketing and communications colleagues? Yeah, I think having an educational strategy that's really guided by your overall plan for the organization and knowing what your areas of focus are. So what are the members interested? What is your audience interested in hearing from you? What is unique that your organization can provide that others don't? And then looking at your other educational content buckets that you have that are in existence already. And then thinking about how your podcast content fits into all of that. Yeah, I have one example I'd love to share. Oh, please. 2021, we were producing another virtual conference because COVID. So we, the the conference team, they had established the agenda and we got to the point where we were recording the sessions and a few of the sessions were shorter than expected. So then we looked at the agenda and I identified a couple podcasts that aligned with those sessions. And so we were able to integrate the podcast into the conference agenda. So it was actually really cool to be able to have recorded sessions with speakers and then to segue into a related topic that's in a different format that was podcast recording. And I think for me, it was a mo- kind of one of those aha moments where you realize that we really are aligned across departments and we really are clear on what our goals are and the content that we should be producing. And I think that was something that just happened by accident. We didn't plan to do that, but when it all worked out, it was pretty cool just to see everything come together organically. It felt very purposeful. It was, but it was also accidental. <laughs> so I think it was one of those experiences that just reminded you that you are on the right track. Some philosophers would argue there are no accidents. So things came came together because the pieces were in place that you had carefully created and established in the run-up to the podcast release. It's one way of looking at it. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about some of the other things that you did during the pandemic that will not be named in order to retool the way that you use podcasts as part of your education for ACCC members? Absolutely. So at the beginning of the pandemic, when we really started to get a sense of the gravity of what was happening, the leads of the departments at ACCC came up with a plan to create new educational content to support oncology care providers who were really entering unchartered territory. We, we did get input on some of the initial topics from our board members and from other members who were in New York City, at Seattle, and who were really experiencing that first wave of the pandemic. So we made a decision to create a portfolio of abbreviated content. So weekly 30-minute webinars, regular blogs, daily updates to the website. And then I suggested that we integrate mini podcasts. Our podcast up until that point averaged around 15 to 22 minutes. And then the mini podcasts were about five to seven minutes. And we just knew that the members had less time than ever before. So we really wanted to give them some tangible takeaways and some guidance that they could implement immediately. 
And switching to a mini format or having that in our mix really gave us a lot more flexibility. So we were able to produce the podcast in a matter of two or three days. We didn't need to write a memo with background information and questions because it was simply a 15-minute call with the speaker. We were all on the same page about what was going to be discussed, and that was relayed to the production team. And the mini podcast typically covered about three questions. So the conversation just flowed and the follow-up came pretty naturally. And then the other bonus is that it costs us 75% less to produce the mini podcast. So it gave us a lot of flexibility. And even beyond COVID after that, I think the mini podcast really transformed the channel because it allowed us to be able to add topics that we wanted to cover, but didn't really have a way to do in a more structured way. It allowed us to recognize health awareness holidays and months, I'd be able to be a little bit more nimble that way. And then we also uh, produced many podcasts when we went back to live conferences. So it allowed us to create some dynamic content like the day of. And so that was also very cool because we got to hear from the speakers and some of the members who were at the conference. So they gave us their real-time feedback to what they were hearing so we could share that with those that weren't in attendance. So it just gave us a lot of flexibility that we didn't have before. And it just allowed us to be more nimble, which is always fun. (laughs) Absolutely. And I'm curious, in those early podcasts, you mentioned New York and Seattle, where things were clearly unfolding pandemic-wise earlier than they were in other places in the country, in the US. Were you able to, were you surprised at some of the things that you were hearing from your members in those early podcasts? Yeah. So we actually had our last live conference that first week of March in 2020. And I think for a lot of the staff, we realized that something was really going on when some of our board members and past presidents couldn't attend. And so we were really heard from them what was happening. And so that really was a wake-up call for us. And then once we got back into the office that following Monday, we got together and came up with a plan. And our board of trustees, they supported the initiative and they gave us some funding to get it going. And then we were able to get some external funding because it was resonating and it was really important content and people were consuming it. So it grew and it was probably one of the things that I'm most proud about from my time at working at ACCC is that we really were giving people content that they needed. And it was really refreshing to be able to be so focused on one topic, especially coming from a multidisciplinary association where you have a lot of topics and a lot of perspectives. It was it was really refreshing just to be able to narrow down onto something that was really impactful. Yeah, so it was a pretty cool experience, live and real, and in the moment. It's almost it almost sounds like a piece of oral history. It'd be interesting to go back and look at all those podcast episodes and track the unfolding of the pandemic. Yeah, uh, among among oncology clinicians, you've talked about the way that members received that content, what sense did you get from them that in terms of how they were using the content and how it resonated? Yeah, I think the feedback that we heard from them, they gave us direct commentary and then we would have some surveys and some really quick 
host polls that were part of our webinars. And so they were able to tell us what topics they wanted to hear. If they gave us some feedback in a webinar, like the next week, we were able to produce a mini podcast with the with what they were need, what they were looking for and what they needed. Being able to respond in real time was also something that was unique because typically everything is planned and you have a schedule and different priorities. So this was truly like a member driven initiative and it really was all for the members. And I think that they were appreciative of it. And I think they really, really benefited from the content. And it also allowed us to focus more on personal stories and and anecdotes and really hearing what people were going through. And it gave people a sense of how they needed to prepare for what was coming. And so it was a nice mix of being very actionable. Here's 10 things you need to know to prepare. And that also just hearing from people and really what they were going through. So it was pretty powerful. You talked about a value proposition. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. And you've talked a little bit about how in the conference situation, you were able to begin to, we'll call it serendipitously, use the podcast in combination with other kinds of education content. Looking forward, how do you see podcasts evolving as a source of education content, not only for, you know, members of an association like ACCC, but also in the accredited education world? Yeah, it's really interesting. Last year in May of 2021, we launched a video podcast channel called Cancer Buzz TV. And that was something new. There were not a lot of video podcasts coming from associations at that point. We were one of the first to really start putting that out. So that was something that I was really proud of. And it really gave us an alternate format for webinars. The webinars, which required a registration login and additional steps to access. Oncology professionals are just super busy and they really just want the content and they want it as easy as they can. So we produced these video podcasts with one to three speakers. And again, it felt really conversational. And then if people wanted to dig more into it, do have webinars and publications and journal articles and blog posts where they could get more specific into the content. And some of them were more clinical in nature. A lot of them in the early stages still did deal with helping providers support their patients who say had like multiple myeloma and were really had a lot of questions about vaccinations and what was safe for them and getting back into the community. Hearing again, like those stories from providers from different practice settings who were working with their patients was really helpful content to be able to share. And I think that resonated. We had really strong metrics with the vodcast and just the ease of access. And it resonated well on social media and just having it play automatically on the websites, just engage people more quickly with a lot less effort. So I think that is something that We'll see more of. Yeah, it's interesting. As you're talking about it, I'm thinking that story sharing is exactly the sort of thing that happens in live conferences and meetings where clinicians have the opportunity to connect with each other and tell those stories about what's going on in their practice. But 
that's less and less of an opportunity for clinicians. So it's easy to see how podcasts and vodcasts can fill that void to some extent. That's true. Yeah. As vectors of connection. Yeah. Are there any other things that we haven't talked about that you see as important or interesting or exciting in relation to the role that podcasts can play in education? Yeah, I think the I think that podcasts are a really important part of education and whether it is to introduce people to topics that you know they're not aware of or hear from other members of the care team that they might not engage with on a daily basis, but hearing their perspective and the value that they bring can really help to change. You know, we did a series on advanced practice providers and the value that they bring to the team and how they can support physicians in their role and enable them to see more patients and all that they can do. So I think it can just really open up, you know, different thoughts and different perspectives. And then there's always that more content that you can dig into and, and learn more if that's something that you're interested in, but it does. And it also gives that humanistic side. It's it, I, it's tough when people are so busy and they're so focused. Sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that um, personal aspect of the work at Hattard. So I think that it's, it's a nice niche there. So, the po- so podcasts fit within a kind of laddering of content that people can tap into. And just to kind of wrap up, you've talked a couple of times about metrics. What kind of metrics are you finding especially valuable? And are there any metrics that you recommend that would any or any CE practitioners kind of chart change in perspective? Because we, we've touched on that a couple of times and I'm wondering what you're seeing that affirms the capacity of podcasts to affect change. Yeah, I think for sure I have seen podcasts that are CME eligible where there are those pre and post assessment questions to understand the impact that it has on perceptions and perhaps practice and I think there's also opportunities through associations to have a group of providers volunteer to participate in a podcast series, listen to a podcast series and do a focus group afterwards and hear from them as to the impact that had and what their perceptions were. And I think that's really one of the best way to learn. And that's how we improve and continue to produce better content when you really have that understanding of what your audience is looking for because they're really the ones that we're doing it for. So we really want to give them what they need the most, especially in a profession like oncology, where what they do matters so much and makes such a huge difference in people's lives. And that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. Lisa Townsend, Marketing and Communications Professional, thank you so much for sharing your insights on the role of podcasts in education. Thank you. This was very fun. It was great. If you're interested in developing a podcast to support your organization's members, Lisa recommends developing an educational strategy guided by your organization's strategic plan. Find a way to align your goals and content across departments in your organization. To this end, Lisa shared insights on how to communicate a value proposition identify what your audience is looking for, deliver accessible member-driven content, 
evaluate your resources and analyze feedback to focus content on your audience's requirements. Lisa described how the Association of Community Cancer Centres developed the Cancer Buzz podcast to offer their members a new format and reach a wider audience, and how they discovered that a majority of their members were interested in podcasts that provide continuing education credit. Lisa also touched on how using video podcasts are becoming a more accessible way to reach members than traditional webinars. Thanks for listening to this episode. As always, I'd love to hear what you think. Which topics would you like to hear more about and who would you like to hear from? You can email me, write a podcast review on Apple Podcasts, and also use SpeakPipe direct from the podcast page on my website. And if you haven't yet joined the Bright Medicine community, there's a link to join in the show notes. And as a thank you, you'll receive downloadable bonus content from podcast episodes. Until next time, I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine.